Yeah, today has been a great day. We're hearing the stories of those who have been baptized. I said in the first service that often when I'm at uh, baptismal times and we hear these stories, I think, well, we've already heard the message, so why don't we just go home? Um, don't get your hopes up. Uh, we're uh, going to look into God's Word uh, with us uh, for, together the, here this morning. But as I was reflecting on where to go as we uh, move forward, I, for the past seven weeks, we've been parked, haven't we, on our mission, vision, values, those things that we embrace and hold dear to us as a, as a church community. And uh, we looked at, at how a, a mission statement speaks to us about our, our God-given calling and uh, why, why we exist. It's, so we've come to the conclusion that, that we exist to connect Rexdale to Jesus and his mission. And then we looked at uh, what a vision is. A vision expressed a desired future for our church community of where we see ourselves going as we progress in advancing God's kingdom. And we, we envision ourselves as being transformed, so transformed by Jesus that we in turn become involved in bringing his transforming presence into the surrounding community and beyond. Finally, we talked about our values. Values are those life-giving qualities that, that uh, help allow us to fulfill our mission and realize our vision. And so our values are prayerful, relational, authentic, humble, courageous, empowering. So as we have thought through our mission, vision, values, I guess the question that looms largely before us now is, now what? Now what? We've gone kind of all through this, so what now? Well, as I gave some thought to how to respond to this question, I was drawn to the writing of the Apostle Peter in the first chapter of his second letter, where he called his readers to embrace the greatness, the great and precious promises of God, so that they would never fall away from their calling and live lives worthy of having been transformed by the presence of Jesus, who is alive and living within them. In this section of his writing, the Apostle Peter gives some practical insights into how we move forward as in, in a missional lifestyle that promotes the passion and power of Jesus. In short, we are given direction on how we shall then live, admittedly borrowed from Francis Schaeffer, those of you who may remember him, as we get to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. So here's what Peter declares. I'm going to read from first, uh, uh, Second Peter, rather, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New International Version. If you have your uh, uh, Bible on a smart device or whatever, you may want to Take it out and follow along, or if you have a hard copy of the scriptures, you may want to do that as well. We're going to look at uh, the scripture. It'll be on the screen behind as I read. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And so, Father, as we continue in our worship experience with you and move now into a consideration of the Scriptures, we pray that you will help us to see what you have written for us here. These aren't musty old words that were written a a number of centuries ago and don't have any relevance to us here today. Your Word is living and active. It pierces into the very depths of our soul, of our being. And so I pray that you will cause the scriptures to come alive before us today, that your spirit will guide us into truth and that we will become not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. And if you do that, we will give you the praise and honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I was attending a pastor's conference a while ago and I met a pastor from the city of Las Vegas I was intrigued by what ministering in that city could be like, and so I asked him, so how's it going for you? His reply stirred my imagination with the possibilities of what can happen when we take God's word seriously. He stated that Las Vegas is commonly known as Sin City. So the church that he was leading had adopted the biblical response of where sin abounded, grace did much more abound and began to refer to Las Vegas as the City of Grace. He went on to tell me some amazing life transformational stories of people who came to town hoping to get more of the good life and end up finding more than they could have ever thought possible as they gave themselves to looking for God knows what. When it seems to, when it comes to rather the pursuit of happiness, we often look for those external stimuli, don't we? Those things that are going to kind of get us pumped up, those things that are going to excite us and, and perhaps entertain us and perhaps are more expensive even that we want. And so the advertisements aimed at drawing people to Las Vegas state, what happens in Las Vegas? Ah, some of you have been there. It's funny how these captions catch our attention, isn't it? In other words, what this, this slogan is, is really saying is, is what you've wanted to experience but have always felt inhibited to pursue, you can find it here in Las Vegas. You can have more of the good life. And so as followers of Jesus who want to get in on the good life that looking for God knows what brings to us, more can get kind of a bad rap. We are conditioned against pursuing more. 
Against this backdrop, we come up against the words of the Apostle Peter, words so audacious that we consider them only as light reading. We easily glance over them and seldom stop to seriously consider what he is actually saying. What Peter holds out to us is the prospect of having more. More purpose, more passion, more fulfillment, more out of life, more of God. When we look more closely at what Peter is saying, we see that he is telling us that we can anticipate an abundance of what God knows to be best for our lives. The hope expressed here is the prospect of more and more grace, of more and more peace becoming a reality in our lives as we come to more fully understand what God has in mind for us. Then he goes one step further by telling us that there is nothing we need for living life to the full that we cannot have or perhaps more precisely is not available to us. Everything, everything we need for life and godliness we have already. It is here in full. This means that there is more to life than you may have thought possible right now. Not after you get your act together. Not when you complete your education or find a new job or are financially secure. Not after the kids are all grown or your parents cut you some slack or you pass through a rocky relationship. Not when you finish reading the latest self-help book. Here and now, you have everything you need to enjoy a more fulfilling life. Imagine that. Yet I find that this truth is easily chased away from me by my failure to live at the level of engagement with God that Peter describes. How can I accept the reality of this way of living when I am so tangled up with my inability to shake myself free from the limitations of my sinfulness? And so I live under the shadow of my weaknesses instead of with the strength that comes from God's empowering presence. But this seems to be the way it has always been with us. Much more attention has always been given to the enticing nature of sin and overcoming the lure of its grip upon us than the prospect of living free from the release of the divine, through the release rather, of the divine nature that is in us. For instance, how many of you are familiar with or have heard of the seven deadly sins? Any of you? Okay, it's a few of us here. Early on in the existence of Christianity, the church identified seven capital offenses that were believed to be the seedbed for a host of sinful behavior. These vices were identified as pride, of envy, greed, sloth, translated laziness or apathy, gluttony, anger, and lust. On these seven sins hung the primary stimulus for doing evil. Now let me ask you, how many of you have ever heard of the capital virtues? Okay, no one. Several years on, after the church had identified the seven deadly sins, the capitals or, capital or heavenly virtues were identified against seven in number, and each given as an antidote to the seven sins. They are humility, kindness, charity, diligence, temperance, chastity, and, and patience. 
as evidenced by the fact that the virtues were not quite as familiar to you as the deadly sins. It can be said that virtue has never quite caught on like sin has. The sensuousness of sin captures our imagination much more than the perceived drabness of virtue. And so Las Vegas holds out much more appeal by being known as Sin City as opposed to being identified as the City of Grace. We have always been more intrigued by fallen angels than heavenly beings. But long before the institutionalized church did its theological groundwork on the vices and virtues that mark our spiritual journey, there was Peter writing to a fledgling group of Christ followers concerned for their well-being, wanting them to escape the corrupt influence of the sin cities in which they lived and to experience the fullness of life that God had in mind for them. And so he offers them this incentive. You have everything you need, you know, for living the life that you have always wanted. Peter makes it clear to his readers that this life God offers is complete. However, there is some assembly required. It calls for decision-making and determination. Just because we can have it all doesn't mean that we will put it to the best use, or for that matter, any use at all. The crucial word in Peter's description is the small word for. God has given you everything you need for life that fulfills you and pleases him. But the word for carries with it personal responsibility. On one occasion, I decided to build a garage on the property where our house was located. And so I went to my friend who owned a home hardware building center and ordered a garage package. In a few days, the package was delivered to the building site. Included was everything I needed for building a garage. It was a complete package, right down to the last galvanized nail and section of vinyl siding. All that was needed was for me to take up that complete inventory of material and cut a nail and lift and piece it all together. It was going to take some understanding, some work, some sweat, and maybe even some tears. And that's when I found that there's a limit to homeowners helping homeowners. (laughs) For the garage to become a reality, I needed to exert some effort. Without it, the wood would weather and rot. Windows would get broken. Nails would get dumped and kicked around, possibly ending up in neighbor's tires. So here's the point. Without making an effort, you can have all of the resources for doing the right thing and still end up with the wrong outcome. God provides the complete inventory for life and godliness. That's the building we want built. Anything else is missing the mark. It's unfinished work. However, we have to do our part in the process. Now, one thing that did accompany the garage package I received was a, was a picture of the finished product and a set of instructions that would give me some idea of what this garage should look like. So before we go any further, let's have a look at what Peter outlines as being the complete package for life and godliness. So don't lose a minute in building on what you've been given, complementing your basic faith with good character, spiritual understanding, alert discipline, passionate patience, reverent wonder, warm friendliness, and generous love, each dimension fitting into and developing the others. 
With these qualities active and growing in your lives, no grass will grow under your feet. No day will pass without its reward as you mature in your experience of our Master Jesus. Without these qualities, you can't see what's right before you, oblivious that your old sinful life has been wiped off the books. And so for the next six weeks leading up to Christmas, including today, we're going to pack on these seven God-given practices as we look for the Spirit of God to take our determined efforts and turn them into more than we could have ever asked or imagined. For the rest of my talk today, I want to set the stage for moving forward into the kind of life that God has in mind for us by by examining just how looking for God knows what will shape us for how we shall then live. Before I could build my garage, there were two basic steps that I needed to follow. I needed to secure a building permit, and then I needed to lay a secure foundation. Peter identifies our building permit as his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. For our efforts to be approved for life and godliness requires knowing the call of God upon our lives. It means living on on call mode at all times. Now, the call that Peter has in mind is more than a general invitation to live virtuous lives. It is possible for people to display acts of kindness with little thought about pleasing God in the process. With the NFL season having nicely started now, an an incident that happened at a San Diego, now the Los Angeles Charger football game a few seasons ago came to mind. A stadium server tripped while climbing the stadium stairs, spilling all of the money, about $1,000, that she had collected all over the place, on fans, under stadium seats, and even one level down below on the lower field section. Instead of giving in to the deadly sin of greed, fans wanted everyone to know whose money it was. They immediately began recovering the cash. Some yelled over the railing to the section below, explaining what had happened. In the end, the server, a young mother and a full-time student, recovered all of the money and was able to turn it into the concession manager while keeping about $170 in tips that she had earned. Such stories warm our hearts and cause us to see the innate goodness that does lie within the human heart. The result, I believe, of the image of God that is stamped upon all of humanity. However, the call to virtuous living to which Peter refers is linked to a specific act of being summoned by God into right relationship with him through confession of sin and receiving forgiveness for that sin. Peter is saying that those who live in accordance with this knowledge understand that they have received a more compelling mandate to reflect the glory and goodness of God. It means getting your life's building permit stamped by the right authority. Now the upside to God calling you into right relationship with him is the prospect of becoming the recipient of some pretty amazing promises of living out your days in God-shaped surroundings and escaping from lesser desires that would most certainly ruin your life. The invitation that God extends to you is above and beyond any other ask that you can ever possibly receive. It is the possibility of doing what you want, 
God's way. Now, I mentioned there were two matters that I needed to take care of before I could build my garage. There was the obtaining of a building permit and then the laying of a proper foundation. So if I'm to make every effort to build character into my life, and every virtue that Peter mentions here is about character building, then I need to make sure that it gets started right. What is the foundational groundwork upon which I must lay out the integrity structures of my life? Well, listen to Peter's instruction. So don't lose a minute in building on what you've been given, complementing your basic faith. Now, being caught up in God's life so that we do what we want is the basic work of faith by which every disciple of Jesus needs to receive in order to behave as God would have us behave. Now, Dallas Willard argues that we can never become whom God made us to be if we simply aim at doing the right things. We must aim at becoming the kind of person who naturally does what is right and wants to do what is right. That's the mark of true discipleship. There's an interesting observation that Mark Buchanan makes from the testimony of demons that Jesus and the early apostles confronted. The demons actually showed themselves to be very astute theologians. And so a man who was possessed by an evil spirit on one occasion cried out to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then the demon-thronged man who was possessed by a multitude of demons screamed, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the city of Ephesus, a demon-possessed girl followed Paul and Silas through the streets shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And then James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, You believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Buchanan goes on to point out that what identified Jesus' disciples from his enemies was not their theological proficiency. At times they were outshone by the demon throngs. What distinguished Jesus' followers was simply this. They followed, bewildered as they often were, while the enemies who opposed Jesus did so, opposed Jesus with clear understanding. Disciples of Jesus follow him not because they have all of the answers, but they know who it is they are following. They have come to trust Jesus with their whole life so far as they understand it. They are eager to learn and to live out his teachings. In short, they just want to be like Jesus. Richard Foster states, We today lack a theology of growth. And so we need to learn how we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In particular, we need to learn to cooperate with the means of grace that God has ordained for the transformation of the human personality. Our participation in these God-ordained means will enable us increasingly to take into ourselves Christ's character and manner of life. The foundation to any theology of growth, any hope of becoming the kind of person who wants to be like Jesus and naturally lives it out, is faith. Faith. 
Faith is the one thing that differentiates theological astuteness from redemptive awareness. We can acquire virtue upon virtue, a skyscraping tower of good deeds, but without faith it all comes crashing down before a holy and just and righteous God. Faith secures virtue. Even more, faith releases it, empowers it, sustains it, directs it. In truth, it is impossible to build godly character in the absence of faith. So what does basic faith look like? Well, Peter speaks of faith <coughs> excuse me, in terms of having great value. He addresses his readers as individuals who share the same precious faith that the apostles have. The word for precious contains the same idea as being treasured. It is typically used when, when referring to jewels, things like rubies and diamonds and emeralds. It also is used in, in, in referring to keepsakes and heirlooms, things attached to special occasions and once received, cherished. As my wife and I approached the celebration of our 40th wedding anniversary a few years ago, I learned that rubies were associated with this anniversary. So guys out there, if you're coming up to 40, rubies, that's, that's, keep that in mind. So I decided to look for a ruby pendant to give Janie to, in, in keeping with, with this tradition. I looked online, I, I visited several jewelry stores, all the while looking for just the right piece that would demonstrate my joy in being married to her for these 40 years. Well, I finally found what I was looking for, purchased it, and carefully put it away until the day of our anniversary. I watched with eager anticipation as she opened my gift. Her delight with my purchase did not disappoint me. Faith is God's gift to us and comes as an expression of his deep and lasting love. He extends it to us, hoping that our response, hoping that our receiving of it will show our delight in his provision. Peter saw that his readers got it when it came to embracing faith as a most treasured value. When he commended them for having a faith like ours, he was commending them for embracing the preciousness of this treasure that God has given. The implication from this statement is that while some people get it when it comes to the value they place on faith, others miss out. The Bible is clear in its instruction that without faith it is impossible to please God, and whatever is done outside of faith is sin. The basic faith upon which we are to build our lives is formed by the conviction that faith value is rooted in the centrality of God to our personal well-being. Not only is it impossible to please God without faith, but without God, it is impossible for faith to have any lasting value in our lives. The truth is that faith only becomes as precious as the object in which it is placed has credible worth. And so true faith, the precious kind of which Peter speaks, places all of its hopes, all of its aspirations, all of its imaginations, all of its promise on the marvelous excellence of God's worthiness. It is a belief so strong that you set the well-being of your whole existence on a chosen surrender to God's care. It calls for a resolute decision. I'm told that at the point where the Welland River joins the Niagara River, 
It is possible for boaters to steer their crafts out into the mighty Niagara where the the river actually flows wide and seemingly calm. Right where the two rivers meet, a pedestrian bridge stretches across the Welland River. And so anyone who enters the Niagara must pass under this bridge. As they do so, they, they sail past a large sign attached to one of the bridge supports. The sign asks two questions. Do you have an anchor? Do you know how to use it? As we push forward in our efforts to experience life in the abundance of God's grace and peace, there will be times when we will be as vulnerable as a rowboat in white water were it not for the stabilizing anchor of our precious faith. And so as we set out on this journey together, let me ask you, do you have faith? Do you know how to use it? Let's pray. And so, Father, we read through this passage of Scripture, and sometimes I think I do. I have just difficulty believing what Peter is saying here. That everything I need for life and godliness, you've already given to me through Christ. I need faith. I need the kind of faith, kind of precious faith, that allows me to embrace the truth and the reality of this promise and live fully in it allowing the divine nature that lives within me through your spirit to become prominent in shaping me for who I am. I pray that we as a church community might grasp the reality of the power of these words that we've been looking at here this morning. That we would become, go back to the basics, I suppose, and and become very basic in our faith, where we just simply trust you. Not with a lot of explanation all the time, but just treasure you and trust this gift that you have given. Receive it with glad and open hearts and minds and being. And so, God, we give you our thanks that you have provided everything we need for life and godliness. And we ask that you would help us to understand in a way that it would become our reality. So Holy Spirit, do your work among us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? So, here's a little assignment I want to uh, give you for this week. I'd, I'd like you to take a piece of paper or write on your tablet or whatever you do to kind of record things. And I'd, I'd like you to write on that uh, writing piece, whatever you use, the word everything. And then write on below what everything means to you. When God says that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness, just kind of write down what that word everything means to you.
You do that? Okay. Hear this. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that gives more and more and more grace to us and the peace of God that passes all our capability to understand but is real and causes us to live in a calm and safe and peaceful place. And the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us to direct us and guide us and be our, our life as we move forward. May grace and love and companionship be yours this week. Take it with you as you go and rub shoulders with those around you who need to come to an understanding what God knows best for them. God be with you. We're dismissed.